Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to this. It's the Rugby Dungeon Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, and of course, thank you for leaving me reviews on iTunes. Lots of you already have, but if the rest of you would kindly stop everything you're doing and go and leave me a review, that would be much appreciated. There is also Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. This rugby podcast is at The Rugby Dungeon, and of course, there is at Rugby Podcast. That is Egg Chasers. Me, Tim and Phil, every week without fail, have been so for four years, and hopefully we'll be doing it for many more years to come. Today's guest is Alan Dimmock. Now, if you don't know who Alan is... That doesn't mean you're not a fan of rugby, it just means you're not quite as informed as you could be. Alan's work is absolutely excellent. So, this is my suggestion. Listen to my podcast, I'm not going to tell you any more about him now because he'll do that himself in a couple of minutes. Finish this, this podcast, leave a review, and then go back and find all of Alan's work. You will not regret it, and you will be a far more informed fan after you've finished. So, here he is, this is Alan Dimmock on the Rugby Dungeon. All right, excellent. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Um, now, the reason that we've had you on is because you have been part of a very, very in, um, interesting... I was going to say article, but it's almost like a set of articles outlining yeah. player migration. Before we get into that, though, can you just give me a little bit of background about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, I'm Features Editor at Rugby World Magazine. I've been full-time staff there for four years... Um, done a bit of writing for other publications, um, Evening Standard, um, t- Times, uh, a bit here and there. Um, been down, based down in England for five years, and I mean, from a writing point of view, that's I suppose that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. So, what made you want to do this piece of work? So, this, to be honest, right. So, what I do for Rugby World, a lot of the time, I like to get my teeth stuck into investigations and I've been lucky enough for them to afford me the opportunity to jump into a few before so in April I did a a big piece on painkiller use and abuse in rugby Mm -hmm. before that uh, I looked at the issues of problem gambling and the potential for match fixing Uh, year before that I did a a big eight page seven page piece on concussion and a few horror stories there and what where, where the science was at the moment and who was working on it so very fortunate to look into that and for this one, the kernel of an idea was, and it was something we were talking about in the office, and it just sort of a spark of interest went off. It was the idea of, and originally it started off as, I wonder if there's trafficking of players going on around the world. And that was the kernel of it. Oh, okay. Obviously, obviously it lay, with these things, the way it worked, investigations I've done for the magazine in the past, it tends to, because we've still got a magazine to put out and I've still got my, my day job to do, um, you know, looking at pages, writing interviews and uh, reading over other people's work and basically try to push out a magazine. It's the kind of thing that takes, normally it takes around four or five months to get these done. So it was, they evolve over time. And as I looked at it, I realized that that original idea of tra- human traffic, you know, there could well be, and I've spoken to some people about the potential for that. Getting people to, to talk about that has proven quite difficult. But really it pushed me down the avenue of, well, actually, the more important issue, and actually something that touches real-life rugby, even grassroots level, is the fact that there are players from all over the world playing all over the world. And where does that go? Where does that lead to? What are the pros of it? What are the cons? Good stories, bad stories. Where does it go? And that—that that was the beginning of it, really. Whereabouts did you did you travel? How how many players did you interview? Just give me a bit more of a flavour for the actual size of it. Yeah. So. Once I started looking into it, and we we threw about some headlines for it, and sometimes actually that can push you in a certain direction, and we realised that human traffic was a bit extreme. So what we looked at, we we opted for, and what ended up being the headline was the Great Migration. So we decided, well, I decided, where are the key places that we want to look at? 
Pacific Islanders playing around the world is a key one and you know we've been speaking about that quite a lot recently and it's something that we'll continue to speak about for, mm -hmm. for a long time I think um, so that was the key but I also wanted to look at South Africa yes. uh, and what was going on with rugby there so I had those two as, the, as sort of the pillars for it and then I started throwing around ideas around it I wanted to look at Eastern Europe and then unfortunately I have to say um, one of the stories that we, we found I ended up putting in the piece was that of um, Talafalao Takao, who had passed away in Japan, um, a 27-year-old Tongan prop who was playing for Honda Hita in Japan, uh, and he passed away in 2015. But the, the thing that shocked me was that no one had heard about it. And, yeah. and in fact, I spoke to some some people that deal with Pacific Island player welfare who said it's it's unbelievable in this day and age that a player playing professional league uh, in a, a a tier one nation, well, a developed nation, can yes. pass away and no one has heard about it. So once I had the construct of that, and that was the most difficult one actually, that that took the longest amount of time to stand that story up. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to get um, some anonymous sources that from the club that had played um, in 2015 uh, with Takao to talk to me. I could have had it a, a couple more, but it was really difficult to get people tied down down, down on that. Once I had that story, I went after the pillars. So I was very fortunate enough to... Dan Leo from Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, former Samoan International, uh, was very good with me. He took me out to um, Perpignan uh, at, um, a few months back um, with himself and, and the guys that setting up there to meet some fellas who were playing in the south of France um, from all over the Pacific Islands that had managed to make their way. And we're talking... Low, uh, through loads of tiers. So there was guys there that were playing top 14, but there were guys that were there playing Federal 2, uh, Federal 1, you know, Fijian guys, Tongan guys. Um, there was even guys from the, the French colonies, um, you know, places like New Caledonia that, that were there. And it was really interesting to go out and meet those guys. And that was the basis for talking to them about their hard luck stories. The one thing I'd have to say, even at this point, is that, and I've spoken to you about this. Um, yeah, we have briefly, haven't we? It, yeah, is that for all the bad stories that there are out there, there are so many good stories as well. And that was the that was one of the really good things about going out to meet these people was that there are some horrific stories. And what, what I wanted to do with the investigation was show these guys, particularly when I went into Perpignan and met guys, and I spoke to fellas that are playing all over France um, a lot for for this feature, was talk, highlighting the struggles that some of them have. And it's, you know, if, if you've heard of someone and they're in the top 14, chances are they're being looked after. Yeah. When you go further down the levels, that's where we see um, people potentially being abused, exploited. Now, when you say abused, exploited, just dig into that a bit more for me. Sure. Um, so I spoke to some guys who struggled. I'll give you one anecdote, actually, which I think mm -hmm. kind of sums this up. Is there was a, I, I met a player who didn't want to go on the record with this story, but because um, he, he felt that people would know who he was and who the clubs were. So... But what he told me is that he told me a story of a young Fijian winger who'd bounced from club to club, who hadn't really been looked looked after, um, and people just didn't want anything to do with him. They see, and and there's a story here quite often as well is that some people say people from this island have got a bad reputation. We don't need them. Mm -hmm. So this bounced around from club to club. Uh, eventually landed at this club, and he was put in with the guy who told me the story. They, they made them housemates. And lo and behold, two Pacific Island guys together, they looked after each other, and the guy got in the straight and the narrow and started playing well. What did the club do the next season as a reward for his good behaviour? They put him in a club flat that was next door to a nightclub. And from what <laughs> I've been told, this fella has had to spend some time in rehab. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, yeah. that, I mean that's a good story. It's a good, a good anecdote. But isn't there an element of any 22-year-old who is relatively successful, in good shape, you put him outside. I mean, that's just, that's bad planning from the club for anyone, not just someone who came over to play uh, rugby from the Pacific Islands. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, there are, there are great opportunities to go out there and you have to make the most of those opportunities. I suppose one of the things that I, I find, at least particularly talking with guys in France, is that the culture out there is very unforgiving in the in the respect that people don't want to change for yes. you you have to change for their culture and for a lot of pacific islanders i spoke to they said that 
there was a struggle with that and there's a lack of education. So when you go to a club that's lower down the leagues, for example, no one talks to you about finances. No one talks to you about the fact that actually you've never paid tax before, but you're coming to this country and it's not like England. It's not like other countries. The tax, although the tax system there is changing, you're going to have to fill out your taxes at the end of the year. And you're going to have to pay over a certain money. No one's ever taught these guys how to do that. So if you're earning a pittance and you've got to send some of that home and you're getting pressure to play, pressure to send money home, and then someone's hovering over you and then they go, oh, by the way, the tax man's knocking. And you go, well, no one's spoken to me about this. Yeah. And just really difficult to deal with. Just to put the listeners into, uh, just give them a bit more information though. What Alan's referring to is in this country, when you get your pay packet, and I, when I read this, it, I found it bizarre. So I'm really glad you brought it up. When you get your pay packet, all of your tax is deducted. In France, doesn't matter where you work, you've got to save your tax and then pay it at, pay it at the end of the year. So if you yeah. never experienced, I mean, I wouldn't know what to do if I went to France. I just, yeah. I just wouldn't. Let alone someone who's never dealt with, you know, the French tax system. Yeah, and in fact, um, you're you're based in Manchester, aren't you? Yeah. So you remember a guy Kuliman, um, the Russian second row that played for Sale for a very, very brief period. Yeah, he was there very briefly. Yeah, very briefly. So he is actually based in Perpignan now, and I met him when I went out to meet the Pacific Rugby Player Welfare. Really nice fella. And what he is actually doing now is he's uh, finan- he's getting into financial advising, and he is offering help to these guys that don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Because yeah. a couple of horror stories I heard out there, and you have to bear in mind as well, and it's, it's one of the things you had to try to line with, is when you're hearing a lot of anecdotal evidence for stuff, some of it can be secondhand, some of it can be thirdhand. You've got to, you know particularly with an investigation like this, you have to make sure what you can stand up or at least get a first-hand account from someone on this. Mm. But one of the horror stories I heard from from a couple of players, actually, when I went out and met these guys in Perpignan, was that they had stories of fellas who had been a couple of years behind on their tax. And the club, um, I think it was uh, in the Federal, turned around and said, we'll help you with your tax bill but then we're kicking you off our payroll at the end of the season. So it was an excuse to get rid of this player and get oh, someone else. I see. Which is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what it does do is it gives the clubs a certain amount of power or a certain amount of undue, yeah. undue power. Yeah. But, you know, not to set this off, off on a tangent too much, a lot of the stories that I was reading, particularly about the money, do you know what it, remind, it reminded me of? It reminded me of Rugby League. Right. As in, they're not being paid too much, um, you know, rugby league players. Uh, you know, if you hang around for any length of time with anyone with anyone with rugby league um, stories, it's all the same stuff. Struggling with, um, struggling with, struggle, not struggling with money because the amount that they get is absolutely fine. Struggling comparatively. So if you are in a changing room and you're earning forty k, but the guy next to you is is earning eighty k, and you you know you spend all day together, guess what? You all spend up to the amount that earns at, that of the guy who earns at eighty k. If that makes sense. And these stories just permeate not just actually rugby league, but almost all sports where players sure. just do, do not know what to do with cash. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that we're talking as if all money is regulated as well. You know, if some guy's on a pay-as-you-play contract or there's, you know, if it's an amateur an amateur club, say we're talking about someone in Federal 3, for example, in France. And I, I keep using France as the example, but, you know, this could extrapolate this. This yeah. could go anywhere in the world, really. Anywhere where there's not an elite what was considered an elite league. You know, there can be money going under the table. In fact, when I did um, my uh, investigation into concussion, I, uh, I led that off with an interview with a guy who, after three years after major concussions, was really struggling. And he'd played out professionally in Russia. And speaking to him about that, the thing that blew my mind um, was that he was playing, he was a you know considered a full-time professional, but he'd be playing in Russia with guys that were pay-as-you-play. And full contact training... If you didn't play, you didn't earn your money that week. So boys were tearing each other apart in training. You know, he said it did get fairly brutal. When you take that, and then if you go back to the, the, the example of the Pacific Islanders, you've got that, and then someone at home is saying, I don't care if you're playing through injury, by the way, because you've got to send your cash home. Mm. And one of the examples I got from guys is if you're earning 600 euros a month and you're sending 500 euros a month back, back to the islands and you've got... Bill, a few bills to play, uh, you know, if you're putting a club flat, you're still going to have to look after, your, after yourself, pay for this, pay for that, transportation, example. By the time you come around to eating, as a what's supposedly a full-time athlete, you're not going to be looking after yourself too well. Yeah, I, I remember reading that in your piece, and I just thought, that's insane. I mean, even 
I mean, I mean it, even for the normal person on the street, if you want to eat, eat healthy, that's actually extraordinarily expensive compared to the average yeah. diet. Yeah, I know, and I don't. I'm not saying for any second that you and I are saints, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to do. So that was the that was the Pacific Island side of things. But on the other side of that, in the same piece, and it was, and I spoke to some very good people from Eastern Europe, and the you know, so much glowing praise for the opportunities that rugby can provide someone that's willing to go abroad. Yeah, you know, I'm speaking to a lot of guys from Georgia, and the biggest concern for them, and it's. I tried as much as as much, my main focus I wanted to do once I had the plan in place was to focus on as much as I could outside of the very very top tier of club rugby. Yeah. Because those are the guys that are are ripe for ex, um, exposure to possibly move up or be to be taken advantage of. And the other thing I wanted to do was to stay as clear as possible as I could from test rugby because it's for a lot of people it's just about earning your crust. It's about making a living. Yes. And it was yeah. really good to speak to guys from Georgia who were saying, you know all that hubbub about cutting down on the number of foreign nationals coming into the top 14? Well, we hope that that doesn't happen because there are young lads growing up in Georgia who, if they want to make it in rugby, are going to have to go abroad. Yeah. And to cut down on their opportunities means that you could be missing out on their dream because um, Milton Haig, the head coach of Georgia, gave us a, a great example. Actually, it was he said a few years ago, six or seven guys from their under twenties will be taken into academies in France this season after they hosted their own under twenties World Cup. Because of the changes to the GIFs in, in France and the pressure that Bernard Laporte is putting on clubs there to go homegrown, one player from Georgia has, has been signed from that under twenties team. Nope. Now, some people will be celebrating that, but the other side of things is. A lot, of, lot of guys from that under twenties may end up just going. You know what? I love my rugby, and I think I could go a long way, but I've got to go and get a job. Yeah, I completely agree because um, George have got a very different point of view from this to what most people would actually assume that there is, which is let's get our lads capped at our you know age grade team so they're not eligible to go elsewhere, and then basically get them on planes and get get them, get them into France. Yeah, or or anywhere. And the biggest problem, I suppose, the biggest problem for Georgian is their visa. It's quite similar to um, a few people I spoke to is that if you speak to someone from Zimbabwe or South Africa, for example, their visa is a nightmare. It's the same problem for Georgians. It's really hard to get a, a, a visa for some of these players abroad. And France was a, a great option for a lot of them. But, mm. you know, it, it's getting harder. Now, is that one of the reasons we find so many more imports in France than we do in the UK? Or... You know what? It's, it, the visa side of things isn't something I delved into too much, but I, you know, I'd imagine so. And mm. also, it's the, I suppose it's the leniency of the the academy, you know, because the academy system there is used largely to to get guys on contracts, but for a lot less money, and to get them in the system. The GIFs used to be a way around that. That's what they're cracking down on now, and that's where the the opportunities will be, be falling down. But if I'm honest, I haven't really looked too much into the visa side of things. However, going on to the South African side of things with the the player drain, and it was. Really fascinating to speak to people about that and the sheer volume of talent that's mm. leaving South Africa, the, the fear that more talent will go. Sometimes, and I, I, I didn't have the space to, you know, you could write and write and write about these things, but I didn't have the space to cover the fact that there are a lot of young guys who, you know what, they want to get out of South Africa. They want to take the opportunity to go and get, uh, go to university in Ireland and play rugby at the same time or go to university in England or see a bit of, of other nations. And there's, there's always a cultural side of things as well. Sometimes it's not just someone rubbing their hands and going, right, let's get the biggest bruiser we can from South Africa or, or Samoa and then play for these teams. A lot of the time it is that, but sometimes it's just these kids have got an opportunity and they snap it because it's sometimes it's a lot more than just playing rugby. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And that's sort of where I think the difference is between a guy coming over from South Africa who can come over and, you know, not sound too patronising about it, but come over maybe have a bit more of a Western education, you know, hold down a job and then play part-time and then top up whatever mortgage payments or rent or rent payments in the championship here or, you know, yeah. National 1, National 2. Whereas I yeah. do think that if you're coming over from the Pacific Islands, it is to make it as a rugby player. And they're two very different things. Absolutely. And I think the South African thing as well is that there's, there's a lack of opportunity. I mean, some people have spoken about where the opportunities really lie in South Africa. And you've got to remember the fact as well is that the RAND is so weak mm. that, you know, you're going to have to graph. I mean, that's that was one of the big selling points um, when I spoke to um, 
uh, when I spoke to the South African guys about their World Cup bid, was the one of their main selling points was, well, you know, if you come over here, labor's cheaper. You know, if you want to build anything, it's cheaper. <laughs> because the brand is, you know, if you want to, if you, forget getting the train in France. If you want to fly between venues, you can because it's really cheap. Yeah, or or we can build something. No problem. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, forget about it. Yeah, get it done. So, um, you you did four you did four four different de- destinations, if I remember cor- correctly. Yeah. Did, was there any common themes? Because it strikes me as every, almost every one of these parts of your article do it for very different reasons. Was there anything that brought them all together? Um, well, as I said, the common theme for me was the idea of just guys earning a living. Mm. Uh, and that was something that, no matter where you turned, um, and I suppose you have to, what you have to do is divorce yourself from the politics of it all, which is hard to do yes. when, when a lot of people will be looking at this subject and going, well, it's all about tests because that's all we really care about. And is that someone, is that person really Scottish? Are they really Irish? Um, so I've, I felt compelled to put in bits about that. So we do have an official statement from World Rugby uh, about the what their views are on the academies being set up in the Pacific Islands and uh, the, the way that um, scouts operate. Um, and we've given people a breakdown of exactly what the rule changes are for residency will be in 2020 uh, and the changes there. But the thing that tied it all together really for me was the, the human compulsion to just look after you and yours. Yeah. And, yeah. and I found that. And that's when I spoke to guys like Johan van Heerden, uh, for example, who uh, plays for the Romanian national team, but he's a, he's a South African by birth. Um, and he went out He went out to that league purely because the opportunities he found in South Africa playing Curry Cup were fairly limited. He also said that he'd been dicked about quite a lot with um, what he described as dodgy agents, had to do his own deals a couple of times. But he didn't feel like he was well represented in his own country. So he went out to see what professional rugby in Romania was like. And lo and behold, he quite liked it, did his time there. And someone said, do you want to play for the national team? And he went, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. Opportunity to play test rugby. Why would I say no to that? You know, guys that are going out, um, that idea of bettering yourself as well. For example, there's a, I, I didn't really have the space to touch on it when I spoke about Asia and um, the tragedy that befell Takao in, in Japanese rugby. But there is a, a well-established pipeline of Tongan talent going to Japan. And what it is, is that the school, there's a partnership between schools there where young um young talented players can go and get an education in Japan. That's And because university rugby is so big in Japan um, that these guys get an opportunity to higher education. Now, the next step from that tends to be going to a professional club that's owned by a company. Yep. Um, Japanese rugby is very different to what we have uh, here in the West in that companies all own the, the top rugby teams. But a lot of guys, if you're not the top-end professionals, so... Your Matt Gittos, for example, going out and playing Japan. If you're not one of those guys, a lot of people will end up doing a nine to five for the company. So, say working a token security job or a security job, or working maybe a little job in the factory, uh, nine to five, and then going to do a bit of training and then playing for them. So, there's a lot of guys that end up doing that. But that's an opportunity that you know a lot of people wouldn't get on the islands. Now, the other side of that, and again, it's something I didn't have the space to, to tap into, but. Speaking to Pacific Islanders based in Japan, this is something that's a bit of concern. Is um, they've seen a a real trend away from Pacific Islanders being offered full time rugby only gigs with some of these teams. And I'm not saying it's everyone, but there's a few clubs that have a tendency. University coaches will say, "He's this Tongan guy's one of our best players, but if you take him and a couple of our Japanese players, oh wow, staff work for them." And the, so some some. Some people, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's widespread, but there are some people in Japan that are asking questions, saying, uh, this guy's clearly very good. Could we not give him a full-time gig and forget about the rest? Again, a lot of people say, so what? That's commerce. That's the way things work. You know, this company sets a price. If you want to take the job, you take the job. That's where it is. But it's something to be aware of. And I suppose, again, that buys into that thing that I said is, is a common theme of just Knock your pan in to try and do your best in your rugby and look after you and yours. Just give me a few words then on the morality of these academies on, on, on the islands. I mean, are they a good thing or are they a tool to bring players over who aren't necessarily the right nationality but the right talent? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the gross concern, um, the, the talent aspect of it's just another it's just natural, another natural resource for teams to take on and 
Uh, I know the Pacific Rugby Player Welfare uh, feel very strongly about this. I've spoken to quite a few uh, groups who feel quite strongly about this. The, where it falls down, and it's shady. And, and I have to say as well that, there, for example, I've spoken to some, there are some agencies, player agencies, for example, that help out um, with academies. So there are academies in Tonga, uh, Samoa, and Fiji. Seremaya Bai, for example, runs an academy in Fiji that is part funded and helped by a player agency. Okay. Is that a bad thing? I suppose that remains to be seen, but the idea that someone from Fiji is helping sort this out for a start, I think on the surface looks like a good thing. Um, and also, as we say, there's no, there are no teams on these islands. There's no super rugby team. There. As much as everyone wants one, there's not a super rugby team there. The Fijian seven side, for example, it's like the hokey cokey. We're in, out, in, out yep. about whether yep. we're going to pay players full-time contracts to play sevens. So you can understand why guys want away. If you're again, if you are young and ambitious, and you've got an opportunity to provide for your family by going abroad, and one of these academies can help you do that, I can understand why a lot of people would do it. Where it where it falls down, and where I believe that some some groups are are very upset about the way it's being handled is the way that agents operate on the islands is works on a union by union basis. Mm-hmm. So your union sets how you want agents to deal with you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. It's the same with academies. So if the agents, if the union says, you want to set up an academy on our island, we're good with that. We're happy with that. Then really there's not that much that World Rugby can do. Unless unless they set out a diktat and say, this actually, forget what we've said before, this is what we want to target and change that. And that's what people are upset by, is the fact that these unions will just turn around and go, take our talent if you want it. Where you go. And of course... That is to say that that is the primary function of these. There are, I'm imagining that there are good people operating in the islands with these academies who genuinely just want to look after players and give them good opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because the way I look at it is it is undoubtedly taking more talent from the islands. On the other hand, I think, well, good. Because they can go and they can earn a living. And if these academies are owned by ex-pros, who better to tell them about the pitfalls of professional rugby than ex-pros? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we could talk about this round and round. I think what it really boils down to is, and what you hope is happening is, whoever is operating in the islands, and the union should be on top of this as well, is it should all be about educating players. So, and it's a it's a big thing. It's a big thing I, I wanted to get across in the article as well. Is There should be, first off, World Rugby should get together with the player unions and say, this is our list of preferred uh, agency operators in the islands. Trust these people. Don't go with any any fly-by-night who comes in and offers you the world and then does deals via Facebook messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the preferred operators. They're accredited by, okay, the union should be accrediting, but World Rugby will help out in the first instance to get the ball rolling. And the player, uh, the player welfare groups say, yep, this is where you go to. And the other thing is the unions need to keep track of players going off the islands. They, there needs to be a strategic plan in place to say, here's here's who's left the islands. Or where are they in our plans for playing for our national team or playing for our under-20s or playing for our sevens program? What are our long-term plans for them? Let's keep in touch with them. Now, um, again, there will be an element of that going on, but that's something that I've heard agents talk about saying that needs to be better. Yeah. Now, one of the things which you probably picked this um, up from my tweets, um, yeah which really drives me mad, are people spending World Rugby's money without actually much regard for how much money World Rugby have or you know what the consequences might, um, might, might be. Um, 
what do you think world rugby could do better and is is there really a solution like a super 14 sorry super 14 that's a long time ago um a super rugby team on the pacific islands i mean i i would counter your gripe with a gripe of my own in that as well as is that it's people telling the islands how to run themselves as if there's no one on the islands capable yes. of, of looking after themselves, which is a, I'm not saying that this is the main motivation, but I've spoken to some people that say that's a very colonial way of looking at things. Um, so there's that element of it. I don't think there's a quick fix. I'd say that it can't hurt to, to look at um, an option for a super rugby uh, team out there, but it would, my main concern would be who's financing that. Yeah. World Rugby are doing, and you have to give, as well as, it's very easy to take shots at World Rugby, you have to give them credit for what, what they're doing with the Druha team, um, the Fijian team that are playing in the the Australian um, Championship out yeah. there, um, to help with that. You've got to say fair play on that one. Um, spending spending World Rugby's money, uh, yeah, you're right, a lot of people, why don't they pay for this, that and this? Yeah, why, why, why don't we have 20 grand per Fijian player who plays for national team? I just think, oh, yes, I understand. Everyone needs to be, everyone needs to be paid, but I just don't think it's feasible. Um, I mean, I would, I would count it with why not for a Super Rugby team? If there's someone out there that's willing to back, back it, and remember, everyone's gone very quiet on the, the remember the rival to Super Rugby that everyone was talking about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened to that? There was being bankrolled by by uh, a mining billionaire from Australia. Um, well, last I'd heard actually, and I spoke to some agents about this, is it's they were claiming that it's not so much of a pipe dream as you'd think. Oh, okay. But okay. wouldn't that money be better spent on a really good? And I'm not saying that that billionaire would want to do it, but if people are willing to spend money on a fanciful XFL style rival to Super Rugby. I mean, it's all very, it's all like history repeating itself, isn't it? A rival yeah. to Super Rugby. We've been through all this before when rugby went pro. Um, if someone wants to build a rival, why not actually just build a really successful, uh, really well-financed team in, in on one of the Pacific Islands and you, see where it goes? Do you know what? If I had a lot of, if I had a sorry, lot, sorry, if I had a lot of money, right? Yeah, and I could buy any sports brand. Probably the sports brand I would target would be the All Blacks. I'd love to buy the All Blacks, which sounds perverse that anyone can buy a union, but actually. Right. It isn't perverse. And, of course, you couldn't buy the All Blacks because, well, you just couldn't. You could buy... You'd make an absolute killing. Yes, exactly. Uh, But unions have been bought. I mean, I look at Germany, and that's basically bankrolled by one guy. And I think... That's a Capri son, yeah. Yeah. And I just think, like, if you're a little bit smart about it, you could could definitely bankroll or come into some sort of deal with one of these Pacific Island unions and make everything better for everyone whilst enriching yourself and that to me sounds like a good idea the bad idea is when people say yeah world rugby bankroll this for two years and then it'll make a profit uh no no it won't well it's it's like i find it fascinating as well when people said why don't we turn around and you've got x number of caps for this country but you can have x number of caps of that country who decides which country gets that special treatment yeah and agree. for how long will there be a cut-off period where everyone goes well actually that that one union is particularly strong or if someone's playing for a, a weaker union and the stronger union says wait you're eligible for us as well come across you know it's a it's a it's a very gray area to look at i mean we'll be talking about residency rules for even when they change in 2020 and change is oh, coming no. and we're seeing differences we'll still talk about it forever uh, it's just on that because you have spoke to these guys and yeah. you've already mentioned like the personal issues that they have to go through and uh, almost like every man for himself right do you think the change in residency rules are moral on an individual level on an individual level well i suppose the the problem with that even that question is the fact that you cannot deal with a case-by-case basis we'd be tied up in arbitration forever mm-hmm. uh, but there are people that will be worse off for it i mean i, I gave the example of johan van heerden uh, playing for Romania and he, he I made uh, put the question to him and he said actually I hadn't thought about that you know that's a very good point potentially if the res- if you have five years to qualify for a team mm-hmm. you know sometimes we'd see guys at the age of 27 that would say I'm never going to make it in my own country go across oh I'm qualified and you can play when you're 30 or 28 you can play when you're 31 if you're 28 in this five-year residency and you've got the opportunity to finally in your career leave South Africa, for example, and make some good money. 
um, elsewhere. And oh, you might be able to play test rugby all of a sudden. Well, you, you probably chances are you might not because you'll be too long in the tooth by the time it comes around. So is a club really going to punt on you, saying, you know what? Or a union, in fact, you know, there yeah. are unions that pay for contracts. Are you going to take a punt on someone that long? You're actually taking away someone's earning potential. Now, exactly. I'm not saying that that I fully believe that that's that that's a bad thing or it's a good thing. I'm just saying that it's something to be aware of. It's not always black and white with these issues. Yeah, because that that's I think we're nearly on the in the same place here, which is I can't get over from a personal point of view why I'm playing rugby as hard as I can. I'm nearly qualified to play for France. Say maybe I'm good enough. Yeah. And then they say, oh, by the way, we've decided you weren't born in the right place. It's another two years. And I, that, to me, would make me furious. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's why they've moved the goalpost to 2020. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it's like a lot of things where the rules change. It's just going to have to be a case of tough. The people have spoken. Get on with it. Um, like so many things in life. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. But, again, you can't go case by case. So... For all the people that will say you're taking away a little bit of earning potential, I suppose the counter to that, if I'm playing devil's advocate, would be if that's your main concern, then you're probably not that good a player anyway. Yes. But, but, and I come back to one of my main points, is that it's not all about test rugby. It's about the little people. And rugby is so diverse now. And you're talking about, you know, Federal 1, 2, 3, below Pro D2 and the, the top 14. You're talking about... The national below the national league, some in some cases in 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 England, you're talking about the potential for semi-professional rugby in in a couple of countries. Here, you're talking about professional leagues in Romania, professional leagues in Russia, guys going to Spain, guys going in the past to Sri Lanka. You know, there's a big wide world of rugby yeah. out there, and it's not just about what we see during Six Nations time. Exactly. I, I mean, it's uh, Johan. I can't say his name. No, Johan van Heer. Say, say his yeah. name. I mean, that, yeah, that kind of story. I think it's incre- incredibly romantic and probably not spoke about enough. Where actually, sure. yeah, he wasn't good enough to play for the Springboks, but he brought a wealth of talent, knowledge, and experience to somewhere else. And I mean, that's Romania, so they're they're already pretty up there. But it, yeah. like you say, could be Sri Lanka, could be anywhere, and I don't think that's really spoke enough about. Well, it's it. I mean, it's a, a diverse subject, and I suppose the thing is, and it, a lot of actually, a lot of what we've ended up speaking about here is is, is governance as well. Mm-hmm. So Sri Lanka is an interesting one, in that they have their own uh, problem. They don't have their own problems to seek. They've they've had enough issues in the past. One of the examples I gave uh, was a story of a guy, Amori Waka, Amori Waka Bulagi, um, who was called up for Ben Ryan's um, sevens team in the build up to the Olympic Games, uh, and they were hoping that he'd be able to play for Fiji sevens. And then it turned out that he'd been illegally <laughs> capped by the Sri Lankan national team. Now, where does that leave you if you're illegally capped? Do you get to keep your cap or do you get your cap stripped from you and then you can't play again? Well, he ended up not being able to play for either. Oh. Uh, and last I heard, I spoke to him on email very briefly, but he, I, I found it very difficult to get hold of him and eventually get any quotes from him. But he, he's, in, he's playing uh, club rugby in Australia now. Um, but, you know, that's an opportunity, again, just by lack of education, by being press ganged by a union that has been punished and is known to have um, dealt with things, how do I put this, uh, in a fairly shady manner mm. uh, in the past. Uh, they had a, a, a massive slap on the wrist from World Rugby in terms of a fine. And that young man could have been an Olympic champion. Exactly. He isn't. And it's, and it's that side of things. And that's the, other, that's the other thing that we need to look at is we can talk about major unions and we can talk about major club sides and I've mentioned how I wanted to look as far down the leagues as possible to look at the sometimes unregulated leagues where things can happen and it's the same for unions as well there are small unions that we need to be aware of how they're operating what I would say again is and sometimes when I end up talking about this it's sometimes I can sound like I'm I'm very down on it all as we've said there are fantastic opportunities out there and you know what and I think I spoke to you briefly about this on Twitter as well yeah the opportunity and I'd recommend any young players. You know, it's a big thing. We talk about the English Premier League fo- uh, football. And you say, oh, why do English players never go abroad? I would encourage any young players that get the opportunity to sample a different culture and play in another country, go for it. Because it's phenomenal experience. Yeah, I completely agree. I, and to be fair, if I was even remotely good enough, I may well have tried, tried to do that. But the thing is, you don't even have to be. My, my, my younger brother and I, 
okay, my younger brother's capped for Scotland seven, so he's. <laughs> but and, 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 and you, Alan, some... with, the, with the best of respect, do not look like a sevens player. Yeah, well, exactly. I still still tell people I am. It's fine. <laughs> Who cares? Fine. Um, we went out to Canada for a summer and played a uh, four-month season out there in the in Ontario for the summer there, and it's one of the best years of my life playing out there. It was a phenomenal experience, and you know what? There are opportunities everywhere. You know, even in your own country, you can you know you can you can drop down leagues, you can make connections, and what a fantastic opportunity it is. And at the very least. It gives you an opportunity to have a contact for later in life when you want to go touring. Exactly right. Now, uh, Alan, how are you fixed for time? Um, I've got maybe ten minutes. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna use every last one of those ten minutes now. Yeah. Um, before you go, yeah. I want you to tell me what you know about concussion. Not all of it. Just from your study of um, of concussion, where are we at now, and how much of a serious problem is this for rugby union down the road? Well, you know what? It's it's not going away, that's for sure. And I suppose we're having teething problems at the moment because people are, sla- are sticking to changes that have been made mm-hmm. um, by the lawmakers. I always find it interesting that people are clamouring for change, that we feel that we're coming up to a critical point, possibly crisis is a word that sometimes people use. And then there's change, and we look at it the other way and go... Well, the game's gone soft. I can't believe that you're enforcing that side of things, or at least having a look at it. There will always be teething problems with that, and I suppose eventually some people are just going to have to get get used to the fact that there will be changes. Then there will probably potentially be quite a few more changes um, to the laws of the game as as we continue to go down the road. What? what Sorry, can, go on. What can you see coming down the road towards us then, which might affect the game? Are you hearing anything in rugby circles? Like, I haven't I, you know what? I haven't heard. It. It's been a while since I've spoken to. Uh, the guys in the law review group. Um, I mean, obviously, we've had the big changes that we've seen um, with the the changes to the the breakdown. Um, now, that in itself was a very reactionary thing. Uh, and in fact, in the upcoming issue of the magazine, we've got a, a small sort of what we call face-off. And we've spoken to one of the guys from the law review group, and it sounds very much like it was a complete reactionary um, decision based on what had happened when England played Italy. And we had the Fox, as we called it, um, where Italy were not competing in the, in the, the oh, Rock. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Coming on what would have been perceived as an offside line if there had been a Rock. Um, so that was a very reactionary thing, and it came in a very short period of time. I suppose the answer to that is the fact that the Law Review Group can assemble pretty quickly. They talk on a very regular basis, and they can at least look at changes. I suppose the question that you're really asking is, where's the research going into in this? There's ongoing research all the time, and there's studies going on. And when I did my look into concussion, there was a lot of talk about the team, the recourse team, which got a bunch of guys at um, Queen Elizabeth University, uh, the University of Birmingham, sorry. And they were looking at uh, markers to finally say definitively who is concussed and who's not concussed. As far as I know, that study is still ongoing, and it's uh, the problem with this is that you can't rush science, mm. and there's no magic. There's no magic pill, I suppose, with that. I think what you're alluding to with some of your questions is the brouhaha that we've seen over the Tuolagi um, non-incident, as it turns out. Do you know what? Was... I actually think the Tuolagi non-incident is one of the most boring episodes of rugby over the last like three months. Uh, I'm glad you agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we know what we know what the laws are. He got hit in the head, and you know that is that. I, I have no interest in in discussing that yeah. particular case, but I think within the laws, my biggest concern is right. concussions are not going away, and in fact, they're getting worse, and they're getting worse because of the unintended consequences of law changes. And if I was to get a crystal ball and predict something, I would say that World Rugby, not World Rugby because they're not the guys making these laws, I guess, but whoever's making the laws is going to put themselves into a situation where they've made it worse and then there'll be a cover-up after that because you know they haven't done their research. They've made a, a law change without realising what the impact is and I think it's going to be more tacklers getting concussed rather well, than tacklees. Right. Yeah, because of the most your majority of concussions are from the tackler. Yeah, um, rather than the person getting tackled. So there's a look at that, and you know you can't change the mechanics of humans running into each other. No. Uh, well, you know, and I think the first step is is everyone admitting there will be concussions. Yes. Yes. 
if there's any snake oil salesmen out there that are selling you a product or something measuring velocity or something measuring the breath or whatever to say we'll be able to help eradicate concussion or at least don't listen to them you know what you're going to have what the whole point is is to look at how we make the game safer and you can't say that world rugby are ducking the problem because um and I'm, I'm not i'm not a believer in tit for tat and saying that this sport is better than this sport at it you're as good as you are and everyone should be trying to get better world rugby at the very least um, very recently, we had the defence coaches from top tier nations uh, meeting with the medical ex, ex, uh, the medical experts that World Rugby um, deal with on a regular basis, and they got together to discuss this this very topic and what they can do. I suppose it's the problem again is there's no there's no magic pill, there's no magic wand to say that this will all get better. We just got to wait for the science to align. But I think what you're alluding to is the law changes might paint some people into a corner mm. uh, because if you're looking at collisions if you're a ball carrier okay unless you unless you put your head down it's a lot a lot of the time it's the shot the person putting in the shot that's putting themselves in harm way yeah. that's putting their heads in harm way it's the same for ruck collisions it's the same for whiplash in rucks which is something that people kind of don't take into account as well. So when you've got the guy running like a like a bull to try and man shame uh, someone else in a breakdown, we've all been there. No matter the level you played at, yeah, you know, see that one golden shot that someone you think I'm going to absolutely obliterate him in a ruck, and that's that's a risk zone. Um, I've heard people talk about high balls as well. I think those are freak incidents. I don't think you can legislate for that. Um, but this, the problem is that you're going to have studies are going to have to keep on going. But the most important thing of all this as well, and the thing where as I said, you're not going to eradicate concussion. The most important thing is at the very least, and this will have to continue getting better and better, is dealing with players once they are concussed. It doesn't matter the mechanism of the concussion. It's how you look after them, the treatment and the removal of players thereafter. And making sure that they're okay for the return to play protocols. That's at least where you can see steps in the science being being made in the shorter term, in the longer term, with the law stuff. It's, I suppose you're going to have to see, wait and see. We're going to have to look at it in an analytical way. So at the end of the season, you can look at the the data um, for the number of head knocks. Is is one season a good enough sample? I mean, I I would assume it is actually. Sorry, I would assume it is actually with the amount of tackling that's going on, with the amount of leagues and so on and so forth. I would assume that would. Be, I mean, yeah. I would wouldn't be surprised if you get enough data from it from a, a couple of months. You know. In yeah. the busiest time of the rugby season. Absolutely, and, and I agree with you actually. And it's the thing that actually annoys me about uh, when I was looking into it is you see a lot of people talking about studies. We have to do our own study. So you see people in the NFL saying we have to do our own study. Um, in rugby, we have to do our own study. It's a point I'll, I've returned to time and again when I speak to people about concussion is the mechanism that creates the concussion is not the issue. You could, you know. Yes. Dealing with someone that gets concussed on a building site or in the military, and by the way, that's one of the biggest areas of research as well, is military and sport concussion. You know, why do we treat them differently? You know, if you get concussed from a, a loose tile falling on your head, or you get concussed because you just tried to absolutely obliterate someone in a tackle, that's how you got concussed. It's how you treat that concussion afterwards, and that's that's where we focus on. So, this, the, the what stu- study of which sport I don't see is that irrelevant it's the human body that we're looking at here so you need to be aware of all the studies that are in place and you're right you need to look at okay let's take the sample from the premiership now let's look at the sample from the pro 14 let's look at the sample from the Romanian professional league yep. let's look at the sample from here there and everywhere now there are only so many scientists that are willing to, to look at it there are only so many experts that you can deal with and also the other side of things as well is a lot of the best experts of rugby a lot of the time will be working for teams you know yeah. let's yeah. let's use the resources that are there yeah you're absolutely right I, I never even thought of that you want the best concussion doctor on your staff probably yeah yeah I mean again in my mind it's about I, I think the really important part other than the treatment which is probably par- well it is paramount is the understanding of the risk as long as we understand the risk and it's laid out it's then your choice if you want to take that risk. Now, can we reduce the risk? Yeah, maybe we can, so on and so forth. But I think people tend to play the game because they enjoy the risk. 
You take it away, people won't play it. Of course. The, the physical element of rugby, you cannot dilute in any way. Mm. And as I said, you have to accept that there will be concussions. You're not going to eradicate it. I would caveat that with one thing, though, is that there is an acceptance of risk when you step out in the field. I'm all happy for that. Deluding yourself when you have been concussed or when you have suspicions of concussion and saying, oh, it'll be all right, I'll just play through it, or playing on, no. No time for that. That's that's where the honesty has to come in, the other side of things as well. Is you have to be completely honest. And, you know, data will continue to change as more and more people accept that, accept the risk, but accept that you have to be honest about it. And, and then we can start truly looking at numbers yeah. and where they are. And you know, the changes and the science will continue to evolve as we go because there's no there's no right answer right away. There's no expert sitting in a room right now that goes, I've got it. Here's how we fix the problem. We're just going to have to keep moving with the times. Completely agreed. Well, you talk about looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the numbers here and I'm a man of my word. You said 10, 10 minutes and I've used up every oh. last one. Before you go though, Alan, tell us where we can find you on social media and where we can look up your, look up your work. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, if you like the sound of that feature, you can find it in the most recent uh, issue of Rugby World magazine. It's on sale now. Uh, the piece is called The Great Migration. Um, that will be going online um, when, at the turn of the year. And you can find me on social media. I'll be, I'm on Twitter, at Alan Dimmick. Um, sure, you can, you, can find rug, you can follow Rugby World as well, at Rugby World Mag on Twitter. You can find Rugby World on Instagram, Facebook, the whole shebang. Fantastic. And uh, have you got anything else in the in the pipeline for us to look forward to, or will we just have to wait and see? Well, the, the, the perils of working for a monthly magazine, we can only work one chunk at a time, but <laughs> um, we've got our, our next issue um, for the first issue out of the year. I think we'll be interest, uh, interested people of lists. I can't tell you too much more of that, but um, there's, a, there's an element of ranking going on with Excellent. some stars out there. And then we're into the Six Nations, and boy, that's a busy old time. I bet it is. Well, Alan, thank you so much. You've been an absolute tremendous guest. No, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Cheers, JB. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 